Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have part two of our fascinating interview with Dr. Colin Gray from Purdue University on dark patterns. And if you missed last week's show, you're definitely going to go check that one out first. Uh, otherwise, today's show probably won't make as much sense. But last week, we defined what dark patterns were, uh, how, they, how the whole taxonomy of the different flavors and strategies of dark patterns uh, came to be, including Dr. Colin Gray's group that came up with their five strategies. And what just amazes me and why I really wanted to, so long to cover this topic is because these are things that there are people that are actively out there researching your psyche and understanding human emotions and human thought processes and human assumptions and finding ways to use that against you, to force you or at least coerce you or trick you into doing things that, that are not in your best interests, but are in their best interests. As they defined it, putting shareholder value ahead of user value. So really quick, before we get back to part two, there are nothing really major in the news. I'll be covering lots of interesting stories next week in our new show uh, after Thanksgiving. But the main advice, of course, as always, uh, but in particular right now, make sure you're keeping your devices up to date with security updates. And that includes your, your smartphones and your computers. There's some pretty nasty bugs out there right now on Windows, on Chrome, and even some on iOS. So be sure you're just keeping those up to date. And then next week, I've got a lot of interesting things to talk about, including the whole brouhaha over Apple's supposed privacy leaks with their security system. So anyway, it's it's way too hard to get into here, but it's a, it's a very interesting story uh, and a lot of nuance that uh, was not covered by a lot of the press. So we'll be talking about that next week for sure. If you can't wait that long, if you're really interested, you can just go to my blog at firewallsdontstopdragons.com and look for the Big Sur prize. Uh, Big Sur is Apple's latest operating system. Uh, you'll find that article, and I'm keeping that up to date, though there have, haven't been too many updates recently, but uh, you can check that out for the full story. Otherwise, uh, I will definitely be covering in the show next week. So real quick, before we get into this interview, there is a particular curse word that is used often in here, but we really couldn't help it. It's there's If you've ever been to a site called Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T, it's, it's a modern set of forums with a lot of interesting content, but mostly just people talking. But there's what they call subreddits or just categories of topics. And one of them is a-hole design, except we don't say that because that's not what it's really called. So you're going to hear the actual word repeated a few times. And again, that's just what it's called. So again, for those with sensitive ears, just a heads up. So with that caveat, let's get back to part two with our wonderful interview with Colin Gray on Dark Patterns. So has, has the UX design community, uh, how are they reacting to the popularization of terms like dark patterns? I mean, it, it's become a thing, right? And so now I'm in a, they're in a position of these are the guys doing the the evil work. You know, do they how how do they take this personally, and and do they acknowledge this is even a problem? And you know, what what's the industry of doing about you know the discovery of these dark patterns and the naming of what's going on here? So I've definitely seen it see it enter the popular lexicon, especially of UX designers, but probably you know disciplines that are you know sort of clo closely related to UX as well probably even software engineering and people that do UI design and things like that even i think the last practitioner focused UX conference i went to was like in 2015 or 2016 even then they had like you know dark patterns with like a crossover to indicate you know we don't we don't believe in this kind of stuff beyond that though i don't know how sophisticated the discourse is we've actually been tracking tweets using the darkness hashtag for a while the 
Brignall's Hall of Shame is alive and well. People are still using that hashtag book about it. But I, I get the sense that it's still a relatively limited conversation in terms of impact on practice, even though it's obviously raised wider awareness around manipulative practices. Um, I think where we've actually seen the biggest uptake, particularly in the last three or four years where I've actively been doing work academically, is that it's very rapidly emerging as a topic that people from lots of different disciplinary backgrounds can get behind as a way of connecting the dots of their work. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when I started this work in 2017, it was very much from a design and human computer interaction perspective with a little flavor of ethics on top. Uh, but now within the last two years, we've seen this surge of publication, particularly from legal and policy scholars mm. and data privacy experts, often, you know, relating to GDPR, because obviously that yeah. has been now in place for a couple of years, but it's actually been used as sort of a central point at which lots of different disciplines can argue for tech ethics in a way that seems to rally people together in a way that maybe other frameworks in the past haven't. Yeah. So I think that that's exciting, at least for that reason, from an academic perspective, because it does um, help people connect the dots. I've been working on a piece that just went on the archive a month ago um, with a uh, people from software engineering, from data privacy, and from uh, European law, um, where we wrote a piece on sort of the challenge of dealing with dark patterns of consent banners and how to, how to balance the requirements of the law and the, the flexibility of design practices. Um, and so I suspect that more of those kinds of collaborations are going to be needed to deal with the, the rich ethical and interactive challenges that are up ahead for us. Yeah. Well, and then there's there are a few prescient people among us like Dr. Ann Kabuki and I had the, uh, the pleasure of interviewing who's been doing privacy by design for a long time. And it's under yeah. underpins a lot of these things like GDPR and privacy. So at least there are some people out there who got this a long time ago. We're all just we're all <laughs> catching up. Okay. So in the paper, you talk, you draw a distinction between dark patterns and anti-patterns. Uh, and you quote one of my favorite razors or one of my favorite little quips. So <laughs> tell us what the difference is that in, uh, in your view, like what percentage of what we're seeing today is a dark pattern versus an anti-pattern? Yeah, so the distinction we made there was a distinction that Brignall made as well, that you know some of these are, patterns are dark because they're crafty, because they're using human psychology, and because they're trying to trick or nudge a user into doing something. But sometimes it's just bad design. <laughs> sometimes it's a person who might be a really great software engineer, but be a really bad UX designer. And so, you know, they're using like, you know, functional forms of programming just to like get the user flow right, but maybe neglecting some of these key features of like uh, speaking in the user's language or adapting to the user's mental model instead of just playing back the system model in the, in the way that the interface is constructed. And those would be examples of bad design. But honestly, I think that this is a minority. I, I included it in the original paper as a way uh, to sort of draw some distinctions among this craftiness and just people being bad at their jobs. Mm. But I don't think that that's the primary challenge right now. I mean, a lot, especially a lot of these decisions that are A-B tested, that are validated through statistical models. It might not be the original designer intent to make something manipulative, but often through this model generation and validation, something becomes craftier and craftier over time. Um, and so these are certainly not examples of bad design in most cases. Even some of the work that we've done more broadly on the subreddit, one of my favorite subreddits called Asshole Design, <laughs> uh, which includes a lot of dark patterns. Mm -hmm. All A lot of these very coercive patterns, which we actually you know describe as asshole properties rather than, rather than dark patterns. They're not crafty. They're not hidden. But they're also not bad design. They're still made to get, get an interaction, provoke a response. 
in a way that is pretty recognizable. Even looking at a lot of this, the stuff that's been coming out about disinformation campaigns over the last year yeah, or so oh, yeah. in the United States in particular, a lot of common disinformation strategies are not to, you know, be sneaky about your lying. It's about to be so bold-faced about your lying and actually show lots of different points of conflicting evidence so that you confuse the person rather than actually provide some clarity around what they're responding to. And so this is often what we see from the asshole property um, side as well. So less, a lot less on, the, on the, the bad design side right now, mostly because web systems have started to consolidate and a lot of websites are starting to look like each other. Mm. Um, this is a pretty known phenomenon. It's been studied in the research literature as well. And so a lot of these systems are pretty decent from a user interface perspective, at least as a starting point. And so we're seeing a lot more on the crafty side. Okay. So, you know, and this comes up often on the show too, because it, it, it it's, it's a refrain you often hear from folks in the internet and about the internet economy. And that is nobody wants to pay for anything. So it, the way we pay for the internet today is through advertising. And so if we were to opt out of all these things and avoid all these traps, all of a sudden that the internet economy would collapse because they're counting on this to make revenue and without the revenue, this stuff goes away. What do you think about that argument? So I'll go back to what I was mentioning earlier, that we do live in a capitalist system. We have to think about shareholder value and user value. Um, and there, we have to think about the exchange of those. Because this isn't a fair fight, we've ended up giving away way more than we thought right. without really understanding the value. If you look at the the net worth or the the capital of large tech companies, you can see that they made a lot of money on oh, yeah. us mm-hmm. and our data and our experiences and our and our commerce behavior. Right. And so I think the issue one of the issues is to start to recognize that actually oh, even our attention is a scarce resource mm-hmm. and it has value in ways that we might not have been able to think about in more detailed ways a decade ago, even though scholars were starting to recognize that this was a real issue back then. So that's sort of I think one dimension to to realize that we have value too, uh, and that that has to be balanced against some of these shareholder desires. Another shift is, I think, sort of, you know, there's been a shift towards like software as a service and towards services that are either free or they're supported over subscription. Mm -hmm. There has been some user backlash to some of those models, but I think, you know, adding transparency to those models would go a long way. Mm -hmm. And so having people identify what they're willing to give up and that might model some of the ways that those systems and, and services are priced. Um, and I think this next year is going to be really, really interesting to watch in this regard. Because um, as you as you probably know, Apple delayed implementation oh, yeah. of, mm-hmm. uh, of no ad tracking mm-hmm. in the latest version of iOS, which was really controversial. And now the CCPA looks like it might actually block very similar kinds right. of tracking um, to go public in a couple of years. So I think as we start to see how different advertising-centric tech entities react and respond to some of those constraints, we might see new pricing models emerge, and we might see new interaction models emerge. So that'll be something really interesting to watch. At least from from my perspective, I would actually anticipate that we would see increased consumer willingness to pay for some of these services if there's transparency about the fact that they're not being tracked. Right. Um, And actually, I'm sort of surprised and shocked that fewer... That, that more companies haven't come out with that actually being one of their large value propositions. Apple's been really the lone wolf, I think, in this area to say explicitly, like, we're not interested in sharing and selling your data, and we're going to do as much on device as possible. And I would anticipate that other tech companies might start to use that same line of argument to actually differentiate themselves from the competition. Well, I hope, I hope you're right. I hope so. <laughs> 
Well, one of the one of the only exceptions I take to some of that, and I've talked, you know, and partially this is because I've talked to so many people from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, they've kind of drilled this into my head, is that, and I, AT&T actually, I think, has just come out with a, a thing now where they're saying, we'll give you a cheaper plan if you let us show you ads kind of thing, uh, which probably also means they're tracking you. And their kind of point is that we don't want a class-based system where, you know, privacy is something that only the people who have money can afford Right, so that you know, if you if you don't make a lot of money and your your only option to get this service is to let them track you, then you know it's not as much of a, a choice. It's nice to have a choice, but at the end of the day, you know, some people aren't going to have that choice. They're going to basically say, "Well, if I want to do this, I got to give up my privacy." So, but you mentioned GDPR and CCPA, so that's the General Data Protection Regulation, which is from the EU, and the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act. So. How have things like this regulation, like how effective is regulation at curtailing these practices, do you think? And just because those things don't affect us, if you don't live in the EU or live in California, it seems like we are actually all getting some benefits from these things. So talk a little bit about that and what your feelings are about those things. Yeah, so I'll actually take the first part of your statement first about the Electronic Frontier Foundation and thinking about like access to these services to sort of like equalize and normalize Mm -hmm. access. Um, This has actually been under a lot of fire and Facebook had a program for a while as well where they provided uh, basically free mobile service or free internet service uh, often to people in the developing world. increasing lock-in in lots of ways that ended right. up being really, really harmful. And they came up against a lot of pretty harsh critique. Um, and so often what I see from like an equity and inclusion perspective is that these programs target the people with the least wherewithal, mm-hmm. whether we think of it as, as monetary privilege or other forms of intersectional privilege, which allow them and empower them to say no or yes to these kinds of services. And so I think it's actually quite dangerous to think about, you know, putting in the hands of the least empowered people to say, well, you can have this service, but only if we get all of your right, data. Yeah. And you aren't really in a you aren't really um, in a space where you can say no, right? Because you need the opportunity, and this is very similar to what people, you know, talked about in terms of the opportunity cost of being on social media or being on Facebook. Of you know, you just can't afford not to be on there because of the social connections or professional connections right, yeah. you might derive from that relationship. So um, I think that that's still a kind of lock-in that we need more antitrust regulation around. To be honest, uh, and the. U.S. government in particular is just very slow to respond to some of those threats. But more broadly, thinking about the legislation in the EU and recently in in California as well, you know, this is an area where I think we all are going to see benefit because we're all impacted by these services that are regulated within specific regional contexts. And so, you know, when GDPR went live in 2018, it wasn't just people in the EU that started getting annoying consent banners <laughs> showing right, up right. on the bottom of the screen. It was all of us because, you know, the the disincentives, you know, and the costs of not complying for the wrong people uh, were just too high. And so people actually did put in the right systems to uh, build at least some consent procedures. Now, a lot of them actually use dark patterns. So that's a different issue that a lot of privacy and legal scholars are looking at now. But it certainly has started changing the tech landscape and thinking about what it means to accept or revoke or to give consent or not give consent for certain parts of your data. And I expect that the GD, that CCPA will end up doing some of the same thing for a more tailored um, sort of audience in the United States. And that some, might have some bleed over effect into the EU as well. Um, unfortunately, this is just a really slow moving system. Like 
at least the EU is doing something, but they this is running through their legal system. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, as soon as GDPR went into effect, legal challenges started, right. and legal challenges are continuing to this day around what is it exactly does it mean yeah. for your consent to be freely given? What does it mean to make something as easy to decline as it is to accept? Mm-hmm. So all these different features of what it means to consent even are still um, under legal definition. Right. Uh, and so that's going to take a few years to roll up, but at least there's a legal framework to actually try some of those cases and sort out some of those issues in the United States, except for the CCPA. Now we really don't have any infrastructure to do that kind of work. The federal trade commission has been interested, I think in acting, but especially in, um, what has been the administration of the last four years, there hasn't been a lot of appetite for taking up some of those, those issues of, of manipulation, manipulation, manipulative and coercive practices. And they haven't really been empowered as an agency to look at those issues. So I suspect that actually it's probably more likely to emerge from the states, especially with legislation like CCPA rolls out, um, and at least identifying some prohibited practices, yeah. and then hopefully starting to move into businesses maybe using this as a value proposition to say, we actually do way more than the CCPA and the GDPR requires us to do. That would be a really lovely place for at least some tech companies to start to get. Yep. So back in the day, we we tried this horribly failed experiment called Do Not Track, DNT. And uh, the idea was back then someone had the bright idea of, well, if I set this one thing on my browser, and I'll just, just have my browser tell every place I go that I don't want to be tracked, and that should do it. Well, it got ignored, as we could have seen coming, right? There's nothing behind, there's no teeth behind that. Uh, but there's this new thing, I don't know if you've seen, called Global Privacy Control. I mean, I literally saw this pop up like a month ago. And it, now that we have things like GDPR and CCPA where it explicitly legally says that if someone says they don't want to be tracked, you have to not track them. This is kind of like the DNT 2.0. Do you think that has a chance of working this time? You know, I don't know. I'm, and I'm definitely not a privacy scholar. And so I'll, I'll definitely re- uh, raise my the limits of my, my, my expertise here. Um, but I do think that, so I, I can't speak specifically to global privacy control. I did follow the link that you sent, but um, I, I don't know enough about it to really comment yeah, at an expert new. level. But but I think these the efforts that are done on the like hardware or deep software side have a much better chance of succeeding, where something like very optional and flaky like DNT didn't succeed, uh, simply because you know the the website can filter out you know requests that come from different domains or with different right. signatures, be pretty readily identified um, and then prohibited over time, and even something like you know I'm on a Mac here, the fact that Safari is starting the just ban all extra connections and trackers by default. Those default settings actually make a huge difference for people who don't have the time or energy or the tech literacy to actually work through these issues otherwise. Yeah. I've, I've all heard that referred to by Stephen Gibson as the tyranny of the default, which is, you know, no one, no one changes the default. Even if you happen to know that you could, most people just don't. So therefore the default is what you get. Okay. So here's a deep point for you. Uh, Mr. Ethics guy, uh, (laughs) Should there be mandatory ethics classes for uh, UX designers? I mean, and you know, do we do we need a sort of Hippocratic oath for UX or for design? And, and you mentioned, I think, in the paper or somewhere, maybe oh, it was the other interview I heard you do that that engineers, for example, are often taught ethics now, which is fantastic. I I didn't have to do that when I when I got my degree, but it's wonderful that they're doing that now. But it's it's got to be the same kind of thing, right? And before I before you answer that question, I want to tell a story. So there was when I was interviewing with my double E degree from. 
for Purdue, I had an interview with GE and I'm like, okay, GE, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them. That, that's not so cool. It's, you know, it's something a double E might do. And I, I go into the interview room, I sit down and as soon as, as soon as he's done saying hi to me, he says, okay, we make fuses for nuclear weapons. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> do you guys do anything with energy? And I was like, nope. <laughs> like, okay, good talking to you. And I walked out, <laughs> you know, so there was at least at that point, they, they acknowledged there were ethical issues there. They kind of gave me the choice. And anyway, so what do you think about mandatory ethics for, for UX design? Because now you have the capability of manipulating people. You should know what you're doing and, and understand the implications. Yeah, so the stakes are definitely high. Um, and there are some just weird incongruities that are built into, um, I'll speak at least for the United States context. Uh, there was a data privacy scholar last week on Twitter that sort of pointed out that you know you have to be licensed in all 50 states to cut somebody's hair uh <laughs> yet you do not have to be licensed right. to create mission critical software right which feels a little bit mm. off um now i don't think that professionalization or certification is necessarily the way out of some of those mm. ethical dilemmas um and i don't think the model of medicine where you have like medical ethicists is necessarily the answer either i do think that there needs to be some shared ethical responsibility across uh, organizations and practitioners of many, many different stripes, though. And that's what um, what I'm really advocating for. And it's the work that we're doing now in a related National Science Foundation-funded grant to really figure out how can we identify the ethical supports that people need on the ground to raise issues of ethical awareness, both within their discipline and across multiple other disciplines, and how can they lead towards action? Yep. Uh, once they've identified that, working across multiple stakeholders and working across the knowledge that you know we live in a capitalist system, right. and, you know businesses need to make money and all that. Uh, so I think that there's definitely there are definitely lots of issues sort of at that intersection. Um, now a lot of technology fields these days do require ethics as part of their undergraduate curriculum for accreditation purposes. So if you look at the the biggest accrediting body that accredits um, technology related and computer science degree programs, ABET. They require as one of their sort of foundational cornerstones of accreditation, they require some sort of ethical, ethics-focused mm. experiences. And different programs deal with this in different ways. Um, there are course-based models where you get all of your ethics in one course, and there are distributed models where you get ethics distributed across multiple course experiences. A lot of modern best practices show that some combination of the two is probably the most effective. Mm. Um, but there are a couple different challenges. Well, actually, there are probably more than a couple, but I, a, a couple that I'll raise at mm -hmm. least. Uh, one is that the people who are generally teaching those courses are not trained ethicists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm mm. not a trained ethicist either, so who am I to talk? Um, and so there are people you know, that happen to be mechanical engineers but also mm -hmm. know a little bit about ethics or have an interest in ethics. And so they get tasked with teaching that course. And so that's you know one issue is just not having the expertise or having the expertise to teach it in the abstract but not in a pragmatic sense. Mm -hmm. Um, the other issue is that a lot of these ethics training systems, and there's a lot of work and a lot of funding that's gone towards this, towards the generation of like case libraries and other approaches to teaching ethics. But a lot of it still tends to land at a very philosophical level where it's like, well, now we're going to de argue from a deontological ethics perspective. And let's take through like, what are the first principles in play and how can we sort of play that out? And sometimes they will deal with emerging technologies, but often not in the very complex organizationally and personally constrained ways that actually happen in practice. And so, you know, the example that you gave of like, are you willing to contribute to nuclear nuclear weapon <laughs> is, you know, sort of like one edge case. Yeah. But, you know, the other edge case that's often given to these, you know, technology or engineering students is like, 
well, imagine the uh, ethical impact of, you know, a self-driving car and what if it runs over somebody? Like, whose fault is that? And how do we sort of assign blame to that system? And so it's often, you know, working within these modes of ethics that are very arcane and mm-hmm. very accessible, even to people who think about ethics like mm-hmm. me. You know, but, you know, nobody wants to talk about deontological and concept <laughs> and virtue ethics and, you know. Even though it can be like interesting and illuminating sometimes. Instead, people want to figure out like how do people wrestle with ethical ambiguity? And how do you like work through those issues in a way that doesn't necessarily resolve all the issues, but it opens up the right kinds of issues so that you can act in the best way that you feel that you can. All right. So as we get toward the end here, I I always like to, you know, give people some hope and give people some things that they could maybe do to address these things. So what kind of tips might you have for consumers uh, or citizens, and depending on what, uh, you know how you're looking at this, to recognize and avoid some of these techniques? And you know, is it do we need to be teaching critical thinking in K through 12? Or we, is that where we're missing out? Or you know, or at more basic level, since most of us are already, already out of school, how would you recommend that people kind of learn to recognize and avoid these traps? So there are two big, I think, opportunities here. Uh, one is tech policy and the legal avenues that we've been talking about a little bit to to sort of um, help out the least empowered among us, mm-hmm. especially children and people that might not have the capacity to really fully understand, understand the decisions that they're making. But that's a longer fuse. It's going to take a while to really yeah. come into effect, even if we rely on EU policies that are already sort of in play. We can't wait four or five, six mm-hmm. years for some of that stuff to really come to the technology mainstream. Uh, but that is an important building block, and it's sure. something that we should be advocating for as consumers mm-hmm. and as uh, technology professionals as well. I think the the bigger opportunity is actually um, converting knowledge that you're being manipulated into an understanding of the capabilities of a designer that is actually actively altering and, and changing your 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 experiences in the online and digital systems. Uh, so, uh, you know, a study that we recently did interviewed or surveyed and then interviewed end users in the United States and in China. And what we were trying to figure out is like, do people know that dark patterns are changing their mm. user experiences? But we couldn't ask them about dark right. patterns. So instead we asked them about manipulation. It was really interesting. Um, 80% of the respondents said that they knew they were being manipulated. Hmm. So that's a, actually a scary and a great starting point because it's like okay well it's scary because that many people know they're being manipulated but it's also really great because if we can convert that knowledge of manipulation into action it actually makes it pretty easy in terms of next steps uh so what we found out is that you know 80 percent of people felt they were being manipulated only 20 percent of our total respondents though blame themselves or primarily blame themselves Mm. so you know, that's a different sort of issue to address when people, you know, think that they're just being a bad user. Um, although that does happen sometimes um, in some in some minority of cases. But in a lot of cases, they're already primed to blame a designer, a other stakeholder, a developer. And in fact, um, a large proportion of our respondents identified one or more of those targets as directly responsible for the man- manipulation they were feeling. Hmm. So, um, you know, Linking up those experiences with a notion of dark patterns or with something that might be a, you know, more like advertising campaign sort of mm. effective slogan to help people realize that they're being manipulated, I think would be really helpful. Um, another thing might, that might be helpful is actually sort of personifying the challenge, which is what we really sought out sought to do with our first 2018 paper on dark patterns to really say, these are not just patterns that exist out in the world that you can sort of take or leave. These are in 
explicit strategies that were undertaken by designers or developers with the intent of actually changing your behavior. Right. Yeah. And so instead of just saying, well, I'm doom scrolling on Twitter today a lot, you could say, I realize that there's somebody that has explicitly figured out what interests me and how long my attention span is. And their goal in life is to get me to keep on scrolling just a little bit longer until I've monopolized way more time than I intended. And if you come in with that sort of personified lens, it's not just like this design decision that was made somewhere. It's actually actively Mm -hmm. a a war for your time, for your attention, for your data. Um, And so I think the more that consumers realize that, and I think you know the, the Social Dilemma documentary did a little bit of this work as well, is the more you realize that, the more you realize that you can actually take back some of that control, but it often starts by sort of rejecting the path that has been set for you. Yeah. Um, what about what about technical tools? Like, uh, you know, I, as a software engineer, I would love it when somebody comes up with a, either a browser feature or a browser plugin that kind of just neatly solves a problem for me so I don't have to worry about thinking about it anymore. Like, for example, Privacy Badger from uh, EFF does like heuristics it actually learns how things track you and starts to block things on that regard. Are you aware of any technical solutions to this problem or if, even your crowdsource database? I mean, if, if you could go on a webpage and a little thing would pop up saying, Hey, you're about to be showing this pop-up. This is how it's trying to manipulate you. Cut, you know, that kind of thing. Are yeah. there any technical solutions to these issues? There are not really any good technical solutions yet, but I suspect it's going to be a, a, area of really big interest in the software engineering space in the next couple of years. There's a study that came out from Princeton, from Arnesh Matur and colleagues last year um, that was specifically focused on dark patterns on e-commerce sites. Mm. And they created a web crawler to actually document a lot of these issues in the source code, both HTML and JavaScript code. And so there are some kinds of dark patterns that you can discover. Mm. And you can actually interpret from a machine learning perspective to actually output potential candidates for, for dark patterns. But as you know, we mentioned five different uh, main strategies earlier, a lot of those actually evade detection mm. because they require a lot of sense-making and interpretation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, something like nagging, it might not become apparent until right. you know, something has seen that phenomenon come up multiple times or, um, to actually track it as a nagging dark pattern. Uh, stuff like Interface interference is actually much easier to find. And, um, you know, even like the work that Google did in figuring out how to do search back in the early 2000s um, could contribute to some of this kind of work now where they figured out, oh, well, if somebody's actually hiding lots of keyword tags in invisible text on a screen, Mm. we're not going to give them as high of a rank as people that don't do that. And so I think the more that we discover some of those patterns that are evident in the source code, um, it is going to be easier to find tracking for those. But I suspect it's just going to convert into more surreptitious use of other dark patterns. Right. And I think one of the one of the the big challenges that we're still sort of trying to address from an analytic perspective, even with something as simple as a consent banner, is that um, dark patterns is not just a a screenshotted phenomenon. It's an n-dimensional phenomenon. It has to be tracked over time mm. and you know, if they don't get you with a sneaking or an interface interference dark pattern, they'll maybe get you later with an obstructive dark pattern. Right. And it's actually what we're finding is it's the layering of these patterns over time that actually starts to make a difference because you can only hold out for so long right. yeah, before right. you just get tired and you fall into the trap. Um, and so layering is something that I think we're still trying to figure out how to address from an analytic lens. And that's going to be a really long time, if ever, before we get tools that are that are smart enough to actually detect some of those some of those very very nuanced patterns over time. 
Yeah, and that that is the downside of the technical solutions. Is it usually ends up being a cat and mouse thing where you know someone builds a better mousetrap every time. <laughs> you work around one thing, and they like the pop up ads, right? That was the big thing for a long time. So everybody hated pop up ads. Well, someone came up with a pop up blocker, so they had to come up with something else, right? So, what advice do you have for UX designers uh, out there, like you used to be, who you know are, are savvy about this, understand that they're that these dark patterns exist, and you know perhaps their employer or their marketing people, whatever they're you know. Motivations might be probably just money. Ask them to do these things. Can you really push back short of just quitting your job? Is there anything else that you might, any other advice you might have for UX designers who are feeling icky about doing some of these things? Quitting your job is definitely, should be an option. It should be on the table because there are, and it depends on industry, how much these are going to be central to work. Um, certainly in the, the model of services that is growth hacking oriented, it's going to be very difficult to avoid the use of dark patterns just because of how reliant those industries are mm. on dark patterns to form their sort of central business model. Not to say that there isn't hope, but it's going to require a coordinated effort to really make change in some of those spaces. Uh, fortunately, in larger tech companies, we actually are seeing a lot of interest in building transparency. Mm. Uh, so even if you take a candidate like Facebook, which is historically the greatest mm -hmm. in terms of ethics, you know, a lot of the stuff that they've done encourage better data privacy practices and be more transparent about those practices. It's actually gotten really good over time. And now we're just meeting up with that barrier of exhaustion mm. uh, where users just can't be bothered because they're just too tired of dealing with this issue in every other area of their tech life. Uh, but from a, a practitioner perspective, I think there are a few things that, that we can do. Uh, one is to really just make clear the value exchange that's going on. Mm. And so that, that shortened definition that I used in the 2018 paper about this um, you know, misalignment of shareholder value and user value is something that you can return to time and time again. Mm. When you think about increasing shareholder value, are you actually increasing user value as well? Mm. Or, um, or is that getting out of balance? And using that as a way of communicating among people in marketing and people that are looking at revenue and people that are thinking of this from a software engineering perspective. That can be a healthy way of, I think, uh, communicating some of the, the challenge. Sure, yeah. I think the larger goal, I think, of UX designers, especially as UXers are increasingly in more strategic roles like in product management, is to actually frame this as a business values issue as well. Like, what kind of organization do we want to be? Mm -hmm. How do we want to make our money? And is there actually more money to be made, or is there a better business model around being more transparent to users, respecting the fact that they are intelligent yeah. and um, discriminating consumers? And how can we actually play with that rather than just thinking that the only way that we can get to our end goal is by tricking them into it? And I hope that that's where some of the conversation starts to move in the next couple of years. I, I hope you're right. And I, and I think that as, as, as these things come to the forefront and people are watching Social Dilemma and The Great Hack and, and start, you know, finally starting to understand what's been going on, how they're being manipulated. And companies like Apple come out, you know, whether it's altruistic or whether it's, just, I mean, let's face it. I mean, Apple happened to be in the perfect position to not want to get your data, right? They sell hardware. You know, they give the software away for free. They're not looking for your attention. They're looking for you to buy the next iPhone for a thousand bucks. So, you know, they were in a perfect position to say, oh yeah, we really care about privacy. Now, I hope that they're actually doing it for the right reasons, but I guess in the end, maybe it doesn't matter. But yeah, they're obviously calling out that contrast. And so hopefully, you know, when companies like Apple start doing that, and I think even Microsoft now is kind of starting to go, it's kind of go that way. Cause I think they're realizing as well that that could be a differentiator. So yeah, I, I hope you, I hope you're right about that. And I hope that we start getting more choice and they call, you know, on that particular point is that they make the point of, you know, we're not trying to get your, you know, milk your privacy for money, monetize you. 
Okay, what about like some sort of an independent review body? This is kind of a fantasy I have where there's some consumer reports. And actually, by the way, they are starting to do privacy ratings for products now where you can, where you look for that seal of approval. It used to be, you know, un, uh, underwriters laboratories, right? UL listed, you know, there, there was something that we'd all kind of look for where there's some independent third body who's gone to the trouble of looking at this and say, you don't want this because that's horrible for privacy. You want this instead. Cause otherwise as a consumer, you can't look at a product visually or look at the box and figure out whether, which one's more secure, which one's more private. Do you know of any such efforts like that? Or do you think something like that would be beneficial? It was really interesting as a as a concept to to think about the independent review body, and maybe I just haven't read consumer reports in too long. But uh, I I do think that there could be some value in sort of educating consumers that there are alternatives. But I think there are also limits to some of those choices, just for the similar reasons like the opportunity cost of Facebook. Mm. Yes, there are other social networks, but right. there's sort of a reason why they're not being actively used. Yeah, true, true. And so they're they're going to be, I think they're going to be key areas of tech provision that are just going to be very difficult to escape certain vendors, even if they are using uh, poor practices. Um, and so I think, you know, the alternatives or the identification of bad actors is, is only one piece of the pie. Mm. I think you know the work that Brignall's doing in the Hall of Shame is going to continue to be important from primarily a practitioner perspective, but perhaps from a consumer perspective as well. I actually see some really mundane bodies like those that have been formed through GDPR as actually being really interestingly important in this um, issue of identification of bad strategies and maybe legislating them out of existence. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, you have these... In the EU, it's done by nation state. So each nation state has their own process by which complaints can be filed in relation to the GDPR provisions. And each nation state's actually given quite a bit of license from what I understand. I'm not a legal scholar, but there's a, there seems to be a lot of flexibility in terms of how they can sort of take up those challenges mm. and then respond to the technology companies that are offending. And so for a while, at least, I expect that as long as we can couch it as a data privacy issue, we could actually do lots and lots mm. of interesting kinds of work to to advocate against um, and maybe even hack against some of these uh, some of this tech infrastructure. You know, more broadly thinking of it almost as an informed choice of you know there are these three providers, which one uses less start patterns. I don't know if we'll get there, mm. but even having the language to think about this even as an issue, I think will help most consumers be a little bit more discriminating about their choices. Well, I, again, I'll hand it to Apple. I'm a, I'm a fanboy. I like Apple stuff, so I, I don't want to be an apologist. But I, I like they're coming out with these privacy nutrition labels that I think are really cool, and they're gonna. I think I think they're gonna start being mandatory like this week or next week, um, where every app has to come with a nice little iconic uh, little, little set of icons that kind of say in what ways your privacy might be affected by this app. So again, transparency, giving people the choice. I think that that'll be key. Okay, so what what's coming in the future? Put on your uh, prognosticator hat. What what do you think is coming down the pike? What reasons might we have to be hopeful? I think we've actually probably talked about some of those, but what are, what do we have to be worried about? Is there anything new coming that we should be looking out for? I don't know if there's anything new. I think we're going to continue to see people operating by a very similar playbook, maybe with diminishing returns. Uh, I think the fact that some documentaries are starting to come out in the mm -hmm. space and there's sort of more general awareness is going to make people more aware that they should be concerned. But I don't know if that concern is always going to match up with 
like amelioration of those concerns. Like it's not going to fix everything Mm. just because you know that you're being manipulated. (laughs) It's sort of like the car dealer situation where it's like, well, you can know that the car dealer is going to manipulate you, but you're still going to have to buy a new car someday. Right. Right. right, right. Um, And so unless new models come out, like, you know, I think of Saturn back in the eighties or early nineties where they were like, we're going to, you know, totally go against the no dicker sticker. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. Um, and of course they eventually coded (laughs) too, but, um, but it was, I think, a good idea in the time. So I would just sort of look out for, are there alternative business, business models that start to come up to respond to some of these data privacy issues? The other sort of parallel issue is, um, and there's been I, some work for quite a while, I think, in the data privacy space, is um, increasingly help people take ownership of their data by understanding what their data are. Mm, yep. Um, so there's this notion that I, that I really like from a scholar named Luke Stark, of data visceralization. Hmm. And so as you make choices with your data, it's almost imagining it as a, as physical material that you're manipulating or you're playing with, or you're giving permission to. Hmm. And it's not just like some stuff that's in the cloud somewhere, but you actually have a sense of like it's mass and it's content. (laughs) And I, I would love to see more work around that kind of stuff to start to think through can we make visible the invisible data trails, even in our own homes as Mm, all of our, devices are communicating with each other, how much of that data is leaving our house. Yeah, interesting. Some of that honestly responds to um, Mark Weiser's vision of ubiquitous computing back from the 1980s. So in some ways, this isn't a new idea that we have awareness of all the data and the interconnections around us, but I think it's taking a long time for it to become real. And what's happened first is that everything's connected, and then we sort of worry later about what is implied in all of those connections. But the more that we can create physical relationships with these data, I think the more successful we're going to be in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. All right. Last question. What recommendations might you have for the audience? If if we've piqued their interest, if uh, if they want to go further and learn more, obviously uh, I'll point them to the paper you guys read, but what books maybe, or maybe something a little more accessible or a little more in depth, what, what, what other kind of things might you recommend people go to for further study on this? Yeah. So from a technology practitioner perspective, um, I really like the text Evil by Design by Chris Nodder. <laughs> it's really visually focused and it is uh, laid out in a format that essentially responds to the seven deadly sins. Oh, neat. And so it aligns different ethical concerns against those deadly sins and sort of talks through how we might perpetrate or limit uh, those sins in our own tech work. Hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, a really nice uh, starting point, really um, easy to read as, to sort of think through some of these ethical issues in a little bit more depth. And then from you know, a web standpoint, honestly, I really like the, the Asshole Design subreddit because I think it, it exposes you to lots of physical and digital mm-hmm. patterns that have different kinds of sort of evil intent behind them. Yeah. Also just being aware of the many ways that these like dark things like dark patterns can emerge in our um, everyday experiences. Um, the final thing that I'd, I'd encourage people to check, just sort of follow is sort of this ongoing debate, especially in the legal and policy space around dark patterns and the ways that we might be able to legislate with them or engage in some forms of social control by recognizing their existence. Um, and so there are a lot of papers that are out there, freely available. Um, a lot of the best papers actually right now are posted on the free preprint server archive.org mm. or archive.com. 
Um, and so those are really easy to find. You'll find a couple of papers that we've published recently here that are still in review that won't, might not get published for another year. Mm. But you'll start to get a sense of what is the, like the zeitgeist of, of dark patterns research because it's actually a pretty hot area right now to be doing work uh, from lots and lots of different fun perspectives. So beyond the, the Chris Nodder piece, Evil by Design, I um, might recommend uh, a couple of recent texts that really speak to the role of data, not just as a source of collection or a source of control or even power, but as a source potentially of activism. Hmm. Um, so one piece is uh, by Sasha Kassanza-Chak from MIT, who talks about design justice. Um, and that's the title of the book. And there's actually a, a free version that is now available as well as the book been published in print form. Uh, the other book, which is really nice, I think is an, a nice analog to that piece on design justice, is a new book by Catherine D'Agnazio and colleague uh, called Data Feminism. Hmm. And it's really helping us think through how data can represent complexity in lots and lots of different forms, not just around gender, and that this can be um, a source of control, but this could also be a way to identify more equitable futures for all of us if we can recognize where those distinctions lie in the way that we capture data about ourselves and our experiences. Wow. Wow. Those are fascinating ways to look at that data. I'll definitely have to check those out. And I'll definitely put uh, links to the show notes on those things. Colin, this was wonderful. I really, really enjoyed this talk. I'm glad we had a chance to get all through all these questions and I've been dying to do this. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for doing what you guys are doing in terms of the research uh, and just and keep it up. And maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can uh, find some way to get rid of these dark patterns. We hope so. Thank you so much for the conversation today, Carrie. really want to give a big thanks to Dr. Colin Gray for coming on the show. Again, I've been wanting to talk about that subject for so long, and uh, he had all the answers that I was looking for. So hopefully you found that as interesting as I did. And, you know, being forewarned is being forearmed, right? Now that you know what to look for, and now that you know that it's actually explicitly trying to lead you down a path you don't want to go down, maybe that will help you to just say no or to avoid some of these things altogether. He mentioned all sorts of things, and I try to put all of those in the links to the show notes. If you're using a podcast app, you could probably click on uh, click on the show or scroll down or hit a different tab, and there's, you should see the notes there. Uh, and then from there, you can see the list of all the all the links and jump to any of those sites. But in particular, you definitely should check out his Dark Patterns site. Uh, and that is Dark Patterns, all one word, darkpatterns.uxp2.com. Again, I will put in a plug for The Social Dilemma. It's really well worth watching. It's on Netflix. And it's really it's really related to the dark patterns that we talked about today. And it's how companies like Facebook in particular have learned to push our buttons by learning a lot about us. Things that we give away directly and many, many things that we give away indirectly. Either because it's something they can pick up on based on our, our behavior or it's because they've got several groups of data that when put together as a whole paint an even bigger picture or even more detailed picture where the where the total picture is bigger than the sum of its parts basically and one more thing i want to mention that, that i made a reference to in there and didn't really explain and i talked about one of my favorite razors and when i when i said that i don't mean shaving razor now i must admit i did have to look this one up and it took a little looking but um in this sense it's spelled the same way r-a-z-o-r uh, but in philosophy, a razor is, I'm going to quote here just from Wikipedia, it says, a principle or rule of thumb that allows one to eliminate, and it puts in parentheses, or shave off, unlikely explanations for a phenomenon or avoid unnecessary actions. 
So, uh, you know, think of it as a rule of thumb. Anyway, so the one I was referring to is one that they call out in the paper, and it's called Hanlon's Razor, H-A-N-L-O-N apostrophe S. And that basically says, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. <laughs> and, and this is actually a takeoff on Occam's Razor, which you may have heard of. Uh, and Occam's Razor basically says, well, the, the explicit definition of that one is, Entities should not be multiplied without necessity. But anyway, the more, more simply, it's usually that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. So, you know, Hanlon's razor basically says, if you're looking at something and you're trying to figure out whether it was just really done poorly or if someone was being malicious about it, that generally speaking, you should probably go with stupidity or incompetence. So that's a, you know, that's a fun little thing you can whip out at your next cocktail party or virtual cocktail party, and you'll sound really smart. All right, so we've got a whole bunch of great interviews coming up. Uh, after, I'm going to do a kind of a big news show slash gift guide next week. I'm going to talk about uh, my best and worst gift ideas for 2020. Uh, and, of course, that's focused on privacy and security. You're definitely going to check that out. And in a, a very timely, very timely this came up, uh, I will be interviewing Ben Moskowitz from Consumer Reports. And they also have some really interesting new tools and research into security and privacy. And we're all familiar with them doing, you know, product reviews that talk about quality and cost and lists of features and ease of use and all those kind of things. Uh, well, Consumer Reports has realized that security and privacy are really important and people don't know how to look at product A and product B and compare them along those lines because those are usually not obvious things. And even if they, even if the packaging you know, says military grade encryption and, you know, and private, we have a privacy policy. You'll find out that just because they have a privacy policy doesn't mean that they're protecting your privacy. So it was a really, really interesting discussion. Uh, that will be coming up after the news show. Then I'll probably, probably have another news show. And then we've got the big 200th episode that will be coming out right between Christmas and New Year's. And I think I can go ahead and say that the guest for that show will be Bruce Schneier. And if you recall, he was my guest for the 100th episode, my pod centennial. And if you don't recognize the name, that's probably normal. Bruce is a cybersecurity guru, uh, like literally known around the world. Anybody in the realm of cybersecurity will know the name Bruce Schneier. He quite literally wrote the book on cryptography, and of which I have got a, a signed copy that I'm very proud of. But in more recent years, he's, he's written a lot of very, very approachable books about security, cybersecurity, even physical security, like, you know, like the TSA and all the things that we've done since 9-11, and also data privacy. So uh, anyway, really excited to have him back on the show. So glad he agreed to do it again. Uh, so you'll have that for our 200th episode. And also, uh, next week I should be announcing whatever it is I'm going to be doing for the 200th episode to make it uh, even more fun. So tune in next week for sure to hear that. Uh, and in the run-up to this throughout December, we'll be giving you even more details. And then after that, I've got yet another interview already in the bag, uh, and that is from the, the chief operating officer from Fastmail. And Fastmail, if you have not heard of them, are, they are a privacy-oriented email service that also happens to have a really nice calendar and online address book and plenty of other features. And so that was a great discussion. And it's not even just about, it's not about Fastmail particularly, but it really has a lot to do with how to just have private email in general and some really power tips for, for doing your email. So you're definitely going to check that one out. And that'll probably be uh, in the first week of January. Okay, that's going to do it this week. I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving and I hope you have a safe, safe Thanksgiving. 
you might want to check out. I do a regular blog entry uh, this year. Actually, kind of just keep updating the old one. So you might want to go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And if you search there off to the right, if you search for thanks, uh, I've got a blog entry that I update every year called Give Thanks and Donate. And this is the time of year maybe we'll be thinking about these great organizations out there that are working hard for you every single day to protect your privacy and to increase basic security standards uh, from the products and the services that you buy. Uh, you know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, Consumer Reports, the Center for Democracy and Technology, the list goes on and on. Uh, so anyway, this is a great time to, to be thinking about that and, uh, you know, send a little bit of money their way. Uh, they're going to do their work regardless, but they need help from us to do it. So this is a good time to give thanks that way. But I do have to say one more time, and I'm going to say this a little more seriously. I've, since I've, just since I've talked to you last, I've run across a couple more things that are just truly, truly sobering and, and scary. And that is for this Thanksgiving and this Christmas in particular, seriously consider canceling any travel plans and going to see anybody remotely or having them come to see you from remotely. It's just, just too dangerous. COVID cases are just going through the roof and we haven't even hit Thanksgiving and Christmas yet. I know I've been harping on this for a while, but let me give you two things to look at and I'll just shut up and you can check these out. Uh, first of all, if, if you missed it, go to NBCnews.com and search on Rachel Maddow COVID. And that's R-A-C-H-E-L-M-A-D-D-O-W and then COVID. And you'll find a story there about her and her partner. And But I, you don't have to read the story if you don't want, but watch the video. It's like seven minutes long, maybe eight minutes long. And it's really an impassioned plea uh, for protecting those around you. It's, it's not about you. It's about protecting the people around you that you love. So check that one out. It's it's very poignant and very well-spoken. So check that one out. Uh, and then, you know, if not that, there's another thing you should check out. It's called the COVID-19 Event Risk Assessment Planning Tool. And this comes from Georgia Tech. And this has been making the rounds. You may not have seen it. But if you, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll tell you what it is now, but it's kind of, might be hard to remember. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes. Or you can probably just search on COVID-19 Event Risk Planning Tool. It's, uh, it's at COVID19risk, that's all together, COVID19risk.biosci.gatech.edu. So that's Georgia Tech. And basically what they've done is they've taken COVID statistics from all the counties across the United States and created a heat map uh, of where it's bad. But it's then what they do is you have a little slider at the bottom, and then you say, if you're going to have a gathering in this county, or actually, in any county in the United States, you, you you slide this gathering up to how many people are going to be at that gathering. And then the map shows you, for any given county in the United States, what the likelihood is that at least one person in that party is infected with COVID-19. Seriously, go check it out. Again, the link is in the show notes. Or you can just search on Event Risk Planning Tool uh, from Georgia Tech, and you'll find it, I'm sure. Share that amongst your friends and family as well if they are giving you any resistance about trying to be safe this uh, this holiday season. And one last thing to put a really fine point on it, and that is, I know you miss seeing everybody, but but basically you want to give up seeing them this holiday season so you can make sure that you will see them next holiday season and for the holiday seasons after that. We plan to have Zoom or FaceTime going with, uh, with, with my relatives that can't make it. Probably just going to set it up and leave it on so we can just kind of walk around all day and say hey and kind of like they're here, but they're virtually here and safely distant. All right. And with that, I will let you go. Take care, everybody. 
have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. And until next week, don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>